how's it? Jeepers, it's been a minute. I um, feel like I need to apologize. I plan to take a couple of weeks just to reflect on the first year of the existence of this show and some of the things that we'd learned and would want to do differently as we go forward. And it turned out to be a couple of months. <laughs> there were a couple of shoddy months, if I'm honest with you, uh, a bout of COVID. And um, yeah, there's just been a lot going on for all of us, for everyone. As I record this introduction, there are parts of our country that are in conflict and in flames. There are other parts of our country that I think are just feeling really disillusioned and frustrated. And yet we see ourselves getting through this third wave and hopefully that is a sign of positivity and, and growth again. It's just feels pretty exhausting. And um, I hate pretending that that's not the case. Um, I don't want to peddle disillusionment, <laughs> but at the same time, it's exhausting. It's exhausting just to show up and try and stay positive and try and move forward, isn't it? I didn't plan for this introduction to sound like this, but here it is. My name is Mike Stopforth. This is the One-Eyed Man podcast. It's a show that is about leadership. It's about learning. It's about asking difficult questions. It's about navigating tough topics. And I don't know if there's ever been a time where it's harder to ask those questions and more important for us to think about the type of leadership we want and need, especially in context of this place that we live in and its needs. And it was in that light that I chose to get back on air, if you will, with a slightly different flavor, slightly different tone. Um, today's show is with a, an exceptional person, Bridget McNulty, who will be publishing a book very soon called The Grief Handbook. It's a book about loss. It's a book about something that I think many of us are journeying with in different ways and in different capacities. At the moment, some of us have lost people we love. Many of us have lost people we love and care about. Some of us have lost businesses. Some of us have lost confidence. Some of us have lost faith. Uh, those are still types of grief um, and they're still painful. And it's difficult to find ways to express that in the space to deal with it uh, in a moment where it just feels like we move from one thing to the next and don't have a moment to stop and think about what's actually going on. And Bridget is doing really important work in this space. Her, her book is a reflection of sorts. It's a, a very practical guide based on her experiences of navigating a terrible loss two years ago, almost to the day. And she's very kindly given up of her time and wisdom to write this, what I think is a really important publication. And it was a real pleasure speaking to her, real honor. It was tough speaking to her because as I was speaking to her, I was reminded of some of the things that I've lost in the last while and how difficult it's been to make space to deal with that. But I hope you'll enjoy this show. I just want to thank those of you who reached out over the last couple of months to say hi and to check in as to why I haven't been recording shows. Uh, there are some very exciting developments coming over the next uh, few months. I'm very excited to announce that there'll be a, a sponsor for 10 episodes that we're going to do around impact, innovation and entrepreneurship. Those should be really, really cool. We've got some amazing discussions lined up with some people that are going to blow your mind and uh, hopefully give us some hope give us something to go on because it's feeling pretty pretty raw at the moment so yeah i wanted to say as you listen to this if you do want to reach out if you need help if you need a shoulder if you need a moment to reflect please don't hesitate to do so and uh, thanks again for your support if you enjoy the show if you benefit from it please don't hesitate to share it with your network 
and continue to interact with us online. It would be really good to hear from you. I hope you're okay and I hope you enjoy this discussion. Without any further ado, uh, Bridget McNulty. So Bridget, really good to connect. Thanks for reaching out and yeah, for offering me the opportunity, I guess, of engaging with you on what feels like an increasingly pertinent topic. Mm. And I'm sure we'll get into the reasons of why that's so, but maybe you could take us back in time for a second and tell us the story of how you came to write a book about grief and what the journey of doing so has been like. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be talking to you. So two years ago, almost exactly, uh, July 2019, my mom died very suddenly. And uh, she had been a healthy 72-year-old until that point. And then about a month before, she started complaining of symptoms, but nothing serious. It was like mm. persistent acid reflux and sore feet. And I was mm. kind of concerned, but not really. And then she suddenly lost weight and got really tired and... My brothers and I got very concerned, and so we sent her off to a specialist physician. She had a battery of blood tests, mm. and it was the long weekend in mid-June, and so we had to wait four days for the results. And as the weekend passed, I just felt worse and worse about it, and it turned out that she had four different kinds of cancer. So she was rushed to hospital, and they started doing all these tests to figure out what it was, mm. and it was esophageal tumor that had metastasized to the liver, stomach, and brain. <laughs> and from the day we got that diagnosis to the day she died was 13 days, less than two weeks. And it was just the most earth shattering experience. I have three older brothers and my dad is in Durban. We're all in Cape Town. And so we all made this exodus back to our childhood home in Durban. And mm. there was very little that could be done for her because she was so sick. She had a stroke the day after the diagnosis, which mm. felt like insults to injury. Yeah. And then it was just this culmination of all the worst possible things happening at the same time. So one of my nieces got really sick. She couldn't stop vomiting. So she was hospitalized for five days while my mom was in hospital. All the kids, there's six nephews and nieces, they all got rotavirus. Then oh all goodness. the adults got it. It was just the, the house next door that we had lived next to for 30 years. We've been in that house forever. The day we brought my mom home from hospital to die, they brought in earth movers and a wrecking ball and Come demolished on. the house and started ripping up mature trees from the earth. And then two days before my mom died, her dog, who was this sweet little sausage dog that I'd bought as a replacement daughter when I left home, mm. committed suicide. She like jumped in the pool. She knew how to swim. She didn't try. She was a yapper. She didn't yap. And it was just, it felt like everything the world was, was coming ending. to an end. Yeah, yeah, and it and and it was a case of every day we would wake up and think, what fresh horror are we going to be presented with today? And then she died, and she was gone, and it was so fast that we were all just reeling. And in the wake of that, I, I'm a writer. I've always been a reader. I read everything I could find on grief because books mm. for me have been such a comfort my whole life, and I couldn't find it. And I read. Friends gave me books, but they were either very religious, which wasn't what I was looking for, or there's a lot of kind of dense philosophical books, but mm. your brain is so foggy after grief that that doesn't work. Or they were kind of grief counselor books, like how to help people through grief. And I just wanted something 
kind and empathetic and something to say, I see you and it is so hard, but it's going to get better. I promise it's going to get better. And I also wanted something that I could kind of engage with. I remember going into a bookshop and all the books I saw were too full of words. There was like no chink for me to put my own stuff in. Hmm. But then I looked at journals and they were too blank. And I wanted something in between, like some kind of a, a guided process. And so I wrote it. I couldn't find it, so I wrote it. And what's funny is that, not funny, haha, funny, strange. I had set aside uh, in March 2020, I was flying to Durban to check my dad in for knee replacement surgery which in itself was a huge thing for me because mm. it was at the same hospital my mom was at. Mm. And I was like taking an elderly parent back to the same hospital for something that we didn't think was serious. And so there was a lot of trauma I had to work through. But sure, I had five days while well, I, I was going to have five days without kids, which I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So five days without kids is like <laughs> a month for people without kids. And my plan was I had this idea in my head and I was going to go and just bang out a first draft. And then the night that I arrived, I, so I got there in the afternoon, checked my dad into hospital, and I was on the veranda having a gin and congratulating myself for having gotten through that. And my brother sent a message saying, should we have a family call? And I was like, okay. I mean, I don't know why. And they were like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, what are you talking about? And President Ramaphosa just announced the nationwide lockdown starting two days later. <laughs> so we had to emergency fly my husband and kids to Durban because my dad still needed help to get out of hospital and into step down and all of that. And then we ended up spending the six weeks of lockdown in Durban. And I did manage to write my draft there. It just took a lot longer because sure. kids, life, work, yeah. nursing, <laughs> all of That's that. What, what happens when we're making plans, right? Yeah, of course. It was such a beautiful plan. It was foolproof, <laughs> except for the global pandemic. Where have you landed on the idea of grief if you compare your opinions or feelings about the topic before this experience and when you talk about it now, what are the major differences in, in the way you frame the idea or, or thinking about the idea? It's like chalk and cheese, honestly. I think it's it's one of those things that if you, you can't understand what it's like until you've lived through it. Mm. I always think it's kind of like parenting too, or when you go from having one kid to two kids, you can explain it as much as you like and it doesn't make sense. And it's the same thing with grief. I always thought before my mom died, I thought grief was kind of like deep sadness. Like you, you just felt down for a long yeah. time. Or maybe like bordering on depression in bad cases. There were so many things about it that, that was so surprising to me. It was so all-encompassing. It felt like it just obliterated everything else in my life. And, mm. it, and it was so physical. Like I would wake up in the morning and I could feel it in my body. It felt like something had like lodged in my cells and my brain mm. didn't work properly anymore. It was super foggy and thick and I found it difficult to talk and difficult to put words together. And emotionally, I was like 90% maxed out all the time. So any little thing tripped me over the edge. Mm. But physically, I had these persistent headaches. Other people say they have stomach aches. You have this recurring fatigue is very common, but then mm. you can't sleep properly. And then I'm a type 1 diabetic as well. And my blood sugar just went to hell for a couple of months. And yeah. I, it was only when researching the book that I could figure out what it was. It's because grief is a prolonged stress response in the body. And when your body is under stress, it releases cortisol because that's your fight or flight, like 
that whole, all of that gets activated. So the cortisol and adrenaline and all of that, mm. but there's nowhere to go and it doesn't end. And so my body was just flooded with cortisol and cortisol is the worst. It makes it hard to sleep. It makes you like snappier. You lose energy and interest in things. It's just, yeah, awful. And then persistent high blood sugar for me, which, which made everything worse. But I couldn't fathom before and I kept being surprised by how hard it was and I, I spoke to a friend who has lost her mom recently well like in the last three months I spoke to her last week and she said the same thing she was like I just can't believe how hard it is mm. and to me how boring it is because it doesn't go away like mm. any other time in my life I've always been keen on self-improvement so like something happens and you can can't fix it like you can't fix a breakup or if you lose a job or like if you're diagnosed with a chronic illness you can't fix it but you can kind of work with it to get to the other side or see the silver lining or I don't know kind of like negotiate with what is happening in your life to make it better and you can't do that with grief it's just there and then you start feeling better and then I think what was so surprising for me was that for the first time in my life, there was something that I couldn't fix. Like I couldn't mm. find the silver lining to grief. And I, I was diagnosed with diabetes when I was 25. That was a huge shock. But then I turned it around and started Sweet Life, which is South Africa's largest online diabetes community. Hmm. And I've had bad breakups before, but then, you know, in retrospect, you're like, oh, it's all for the best. I needed to move on. And and I'd always been able to positively cast things or at least reach for something that would make it better. And you can't do that with grief. It's mm. just there. And I tried all my self-care tips and they help in that we always feel better when we are good to ourselves, but they didn't make it better. And the thing about grief that is so frustrating is that it's, it's cyclical. So you don't go through it and then get better. <laughs> you go through it and then something triggers you and it could be yes. like I always say the perfume of someone of a stranger you walk past on the street or or the smell of something like I once went into such a pit of grief because my brother had bought Soissons back from France and we were chopping it up and as we were chopping it up I thought oh I'm gonna save some for my mom when she and then like mm. I only realized there or I would be going to a meeting and think oh, I'll give my mom a call when I get in the car and then remember or put on a pair of earrings that you'd give me it's just there are triggers everywhere mm. and you have to be it's like walking through a minefield you have to be careful not to fall into these pits but you inevitably yeah. do and yeah it's just so hard and I think it's also hard because we don't talk about it I find this fascinating because so the book's being published in South Africa the UK and the States um, mm -hmm. my publishers are in the UK and so it makes sense to me that I mean, if you look at stereotypes, Brits would be bad at talking about grief because stiff upper lip and it's emotional and that kind of thing. Mm. Makes sense to me that Americans would kind of be bad at talking about grief because they, I studied in the States, they're very like, slap a smile on it. How are you doing? Oh, great, great. How are you doing? I feel like South Africans shouldn't be so bad at talking about it, but we're so awkward about it. Like, we don't know what to say when someone dies and when we do, it's this whole like awkward dance around it. And so what often happens is that the person who's grieving picks up on that. Obviously, it's very obvious. And so tries to paper over how they're actually feeling and pretend that they're feeling okay 
which is so hard and takes so much energy, but is kind of like socially what's acceptable. Well, I think that that's worth exploring. I think it's such an interesting topic because we are obviously the the thing that differentiates us from from the UK, as an example, very diverse culturally. Yeah. And there's a sense that different cultures approach grief in remarkably different ways. Yeah. And you and I are probably, uh, you know, we're brought up in similar households and in similar cultures. And there's a sense that the the sort of waspy, <laughs> anglicized mm. South African does reflect many of the, it's almost like grief, despite the fact that it's something we're all going to have to deal with. Nobody escapes that journey. Nobody the escapes that thing. emotion. Uh, yeah. It's it's standard, right? It's it a great with, unifier. Yeah, it comes with the comes with the package. Comes with the, mm. with being alive is, and I mean, for lack of this, is going to sound oversimplified, but we do it badly. We grieve. We do it very poorly. badly. Um, <laughs> we have no skills for it, which I find fascinating. Yes, yeah. So, so I guess without wanting to divert too far from your story, why do you think that is? Why, why are we, as Anglicized South Africans, and and maybe kind of the European, the West, why why mm. do we do this so poorly? Why are we so disconnected from our grief? I think it's because it's ugly. It's, hmm. and it makes us confront things that we don't want to confront. So yes, we're all going to die, but we don't want to think about that. And so when someone has a, a huge reaction to grief, and I mean, there shouldn't be such a, like that even sounds judgmental when I say it, like a huge reaction, like obviously it's going to be a huge reaction because someone that you love is no longer there. I think we're uncomfortable with big emotions around things that we don't want to talk about. So to me, it falls into the same kind of field as like, we don't talk about money. And so we don't talk about grief. We don't talk about dying. We don't talk about money. We only want to talk about politics with people who agree with us. There's like these super awkward topics, but grief shouldn't be one of them. It it doesn't make sense to me that it's one of them because it is the one thing that we're all going to have to deal with but we also don't have the language for it I think because one of the things I found so frustrating is that people would say to me just after my mom died they'd say how are you feeling and I'd be like oh just really sad and exhausted Mm. and they were like oh yeah okay but that wasn't it that wasn't what I was feeling I was feeling like the most maxed out version of sad you can imagine. Like, I, mm, I, mm. and there's no words for it. Like, it, it's so hard to find the words for it because we've used them all for stuff before where you weren't that sad. Yeah. And I wasn't just feeling exhausted like you feel after a busy day at work. I was feeling like like bone-numbing tiredness. Like, it hurt to breathe because that felt like too much of an effort. But even when I say that now, I can hear that it sounds so dramatic and we don't want to look at things that we all have to face one day and think that they're going to be that bad. Because death is the one thing we don't want to talk about, right? Like it is the one inevitability. But if it happens, when it happens, it's going to happen to all of us. Yeah. We kind of want it to just be a surprise because we don't have to think about it because that will be depressing. Except the problem with not thinking about it is that we arrive at death so unprepared. Mm. And we arrive at death of someone that we love so wildly unprepared. I had no idea where to turn. And I, and I felt so envious of cultures that have like a set structure and ritual to their grieving. Like my mm. best friend in the States is Jewish and you know what to do then. There are like set rituals that you follow. And even if you don't necessarily agree with all of them, they're put in place for a reason. Mm. And even yeah. celebrating the anniversary of someone's death, it was my mom's anniversary on the 1st of July. And we don't have 
anything away like you have to make up your own ritual so one of the things i put in the book is a recipe for a ritual because it's helpful to have like beautiful flowers or a lovely plant it's helpful to have a picture of your loved one and candles and some kind of offering like a letter or burn Mm. some incense or something like that it's helpful to have people that you love around you and delicious food and drink but we need to create this space because we don't already have it and i stole from Jewish tradition lights a yatzek candle, which is a candle that burns for the whole day. And mm. so I stole from that for the anniversary because I think it's such a lovely, like every time you walk past it, then you can think about the person that you love and remember something about mm. them. But the the general awkwardness I also think is just because we don't talk about it. I think that if we could start accepting that grief is an inevitable part of our lives and something that we can discuss and that there aren't taboos around, I think we'd get better at it because we'd be practicing. Whereas now someone dies and you're like, I don't say, I don't say the wrong thing. Maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. And not saying anything at all is the absolute worst thing that you can do. And so I think we just need to kind of break it up a little bit so that we can get more comfortable. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Yeah, it can be a little bit like treading through a minefield as you, I yeah. mean, I, I mean, obviously for the grieving person, but for those that want to provide support, we, we are just as poorly equipped in being a partner in grief as we are yeah. in being the subject of grief. And, you know, my thinking is, and this is why I'm interested as to why um, writing was such an important part of, of your journey mm-hmm. is that we, we instinctively, as you mentioned with all of the books that you that you waded through and that you found uh, there was the sense that you were being told what to feel, how to feel, yeah. what to do. You were being instructed. And and I think yeah. instinctively we want to do that. We want to help fix. We want to intervene, right? And as you mentioned, sometimes it's just about creating the space uh, for that individual to... It can be so toxic because the, yeah. the trouble is, and even that, like the most well-known book on grief is the five stages of grief. Mm. And they say in the beginning of the book or at some stage in the book, they say these aren't linear phases. You can go through the stages. You can go through them at different times. Mm. But the fact that there's a book called the five stages of grief, which everyone quotes at you that says like, you will experience these things adds pressure to how you're feeling. And the fact that there's this like societal agreement, and I don't know where it comes from, but it is in like psychology textbooks that three months is, the acceptable amount of time to grieve. And if you're still struggling after that, then you're experiencing complicated grief. Like that is whack because that makes it feel like, well, you got to feel better in three months. And if you don't feel better in three months, then you're doing something wrong. And there is no right or wrong way to do grief. And that's really like, if there's one thing that people get out of my book, that's what I want it to be is that no one knows how to do this. There is no good or bad in it. Just do what you need to do to help yourself through this, it's so hard. And if you can just cut yourself some slack, which is so opposite to the way we do anything else in life. And maybe also that's why we're so awkward about it is that it's so nebulous and it, and it's, we don't know how long it's going to take and we don't mm. know how we're going to feel and we don't know when we're going to feel worse. And so it's so other to all the things that we experience in normal life. 
that we feel uncomfortable around it. Yeah, well, it's quite telling that that model uh, was published in 1969, isn't it? And still cited <laughs> as, the, as the, the defining work on grief. Yeah. Um, one of the things that stood out in your book and in the summary around the book is, is getting over the idea that you get over grief. So in yeah. other words, that you approach grief or the loss of something or someone so as something you come to live with um, mm-hmm. and journey with as opposed to a, a finishing line that you, you get past and then you never feel those feelings again. Can you, can you talk us through your thinking around that and what you learned about that idea in the process of writing the book? Yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, part of me thinks, oh, wouldn't it be nice to get over it? <laughs> like, mm. And then just be like, oh, I'm fine, back to normal. But another part is like, well, not really, because the, the grief you feel is equal to the love you feel. And so you wouldn't want to erase that person from you and from your life and from your experiences and your memories mm. and all of that. There's this lovely um, diagram or cartoon, I suppose, doing the rounds at the moment about it's, it's a ball in a jar. And it says that people imagine that the ball is the grief and the jar is your life. And they imagine that the ball gets smaller over time. Because in the beginning, when someone just dies, it's, it's all encompassing. It's all you can yeah. see. But actually what happens is that your life gets bigger to accommodate it. So it's always there. It's just that you build new experiences on it. Hmm. And it's so strange because there's something really kind of heartbreaking about building new experiences. So every Christmas or New Year, there's 14 of us in my family because it's my three older brothers and my dad and, and all our partners and kids. And we always go away together either at Christmas or at New Year for a couple of days. And mm. we went away to a new place this last year. And it was so weird because my mom would have loved it so much and we could feel her presence with us. And ah, like there's something that's heartbreaking about the fact that we go on now and create new memories and new experiences without the person that we've loved. But there's also something kind of beautiful about it because it means that we can carry them with us. Mm. My one brother keeps quoting this beautiful passage. I'll send it to you afterwards so you can put it in the show notes, but it's about how this man is missing his mother so much. And then he wakes up one night and recognizes that she's actually all around him and she's in the moonlight. It's a very famous passage. She's in the moonlight and she's in the fields and Actually, her her touch is everywhere that he looks. And it's the same as that poem that I included in the book, the do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not Mm. there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. There is a sense that you can have your loved one with you always once they've gone, but don't be saying that to someone who's just lost someone because the physicality, like I just, I miss having a mom. I miss having someone I can just phone and like I'm having a book published and She's not here. <laughs> That's so yeah to be a sad. part of that. Yeah, like I, there's there's and like she hasn't she she knew my kids until they were almost three and almost five, and they knew her until then. And and there's no future there except in the stories that I tell. Mm. And so I think it's such a negotiation, which is also surprising to me. I would never have expected mm. that. I would have thought like you come to terms with it and then you live peacefully forever. <laughs> and that's not the case in my experience. Yeah. It's worth recognizing, Bridget, that there's probably a lot of people listening um, to the show right now, just by virtue of the time you know, in our lives mm-hmm. that this is happening in, that are being exposed to grief in ways that they 
might not have anticipated. We've we've been surrounded by a lot of sudden illness, a lot yeah. of unpredictability. And also, and this is a point I'd, I'd like to explore with you, not just the loss of people we care about, but the loss of other things that are mm. maybe, I think often we think about grief purely in terms of losing people we love. Mm. Um, have you started to think about grief or did you explore thinking about grief in terms of losing dreams that we've had or mm. a business or a partnership or mm. um, uh, expectations even, you know, on a... I'm curious as to whether or not we experience the same emotion, not certainly not at the same level of intensity mm. or depth or kind of the same visceral description that you, you've given us or that anybody has been lot. through it. Yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, actually, because someone reached out last week and said, do you think your book would be helpful for those going through a divorce? Mm. And a friend had asked me that before as well. And there are so many kinds of loss. So there's... But divorce, I think, is a huge one and obviously very prevalent. And then there's also things like like miscarriage that we're so uncomfortable talking about and mm. and retrenchment, like losing a job that you were really dedicated to or, or a career path that you thought was going somewhere. And I think like pet loss for a lot of people is a huge thing that is mm. not looked at. And even immigration. One of my best friends recently immigrated and seeing her go through that is also a kind of grief. But to me, it's a, the problem is slightly different. So my next book I've started thinking about but haven't yet started writing, I want to call it The Lost Handbook, and I mm. want to explore each of those in detail but talking to people who have gone through it yeah, and, and seeing what helped them. Because what's so funny to me is that it's the same problem but in different disguises. So grief, you get – everyone acknowledges that something terrible has happened and you get three months of, like, understanding and care – to get over it, but no one really understands what it's like unless they've gone through it before. With loss, I think those different flavors of loss, I don't think you get the social space. Like mm. I think no one, well, you've gone through a divorce, so maybe you would know, but I don't think people give you the kind of like the healing space you would need after that. And they certainly don't for pet loss. A, a friend of mine lost her cat who she had lived with for 20 years and she's single and she lived with this beautiful creature for 20 years. And most people were just like, oh, shame, sorry. And that's it. Like you don't, you're not afforded the space you need to move through that. So I think this will hopefully bring up a, kind of a, a lingo and a space that we can start talking about different kinds of loss. I don't know if they are the same flavor as grief but I think mm, the loss mm. and like the activity so my friend who suggested that I put together a book addressing all the the other kinds of loss said she felt like many of the activities applied because there's space in the book to kind of vent and to write out like what you're finding hard right now and and how you would find a space to grieve and like carve out a physical space for yourself but also emotional space and and time to be able to deal with things and I really wanted to just be able to scribble things like there are often there's often a thought that you can't get over or like a a destructive thought pattern that you can't get out of. So for us, it was how quick it had been and we felt cheated yeah. and my mom was only 72 and she was totally fine. And my dad kept saying that he felt cheated out of a decade with her, which just hmm. made my heart break every time he said it. And then I read this beautiful 
really beautiful essay um, by Cheryl Strayed, who who does the Dear Sugar. I don't know if you've heard of it before. I hadn't heard of them before. It's this series of, it's kind of like a agony aunt column, but she's turned okay. it into a book as well called Tiny Beautiful Things. And a father writes in who lost his son when his son was only 22. He was hit by a car and he just can't get over it. I mean, obviously the, the loss of a mm. child, I think, must be just devastating. And at one stage in her response to him, she says, your son's life was 22 years long. Your son's life was 22 years long. Your son's life was 22 years long. And there is nothing you can do that will change that fact. And mm. I found that so reassuring because it just reframes it. So instead of us being like, oh, my God, we've, we've lost a decade. Her dad lived to 86. Her mom, who wasn't that well, lived to 76. Mm. My mom's life was 72 years long. And it was amazing right up until the last two months. Like, what a gift mm. that is. Mm. But it helps to know that it's an ancient Buddhist thing, that you have a certain number of breaths that you're given. So when you're born, you get given a certain number of breaths. And when those breaths are gone, then your life ends. And I find that kind of comforting. But I wouldn't have gone there if I hadn't been able to scribble and journal and vent about the fact that this was the thing that was driving me nuts. Because I think so often in grief and in loss of any kind, we get stuck inside our heads. And then our heads just lead us on the same circular path that will drive us mad if we keep walking on it. And by oh, yeah. writing things down, we can step out of that a little bit and maybe be able to see it from a different perspective. I wonder if those other experiences of loss, and, and you're 100% right, I don't want to for a second pretend that the loss we feel around those things is equitable to the, the scale of grief we feel when we lose I mean, someone. It uh, might be, though, depending on the person. And yeah, it also I guess, I guess that's worth, yeah, that's worth yeah. acknowledging as well. So like yeah. I, I lost a, a good friend of mine. It was my first experience of grief in May of 2019. She was one of my professors from college, mm. and I loved mm. her. And I, I'd gone to visit her two months before and written a mini memoir of her life. She had the most amazing stories. And she'd been battling breast cancer for years. Mm. And she died in May of that year. And I was desperately sad. Mm. But I was desperately sad for maybe a week or two weeks. And mm. so I think in that case, something like like divorce to me is is enormous because it's not just – the difficulty that you're going through, but it's also the, like you were saying earlier, the loss of future dreams. Same with retrenchment. Like if you think you're on a certain path and you're visualizing where your life is going and then suddenly you're sitting at home and you don't have a job and what that does to your emotions and all of that. Yeah. I think we're all different and, and I don't think it has to be a, an intensity scale. It can just be a, yes, of course. I see where you are and oh, life is hard sometimes. I guess one of the points I was trying to explore there, though, is that maybe those moments are opportunities for us to, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, rehearse the way we work mm. through and work with loss. You know, we spoke earlier on about our seeming cultural inability to to deal with with loss and grief. Maybe those yeah. are, in a way, ways that we can exercise that muscle and yeah. and allow ourselves more space in in those other moments, even if they they are elective. You know, the yeah. the moving from one house to another, which should yeah. be an exciting and creative moment, often is one that is kind of mixed up with grief in a way, yeah. losing that old home, losing those experiences, those smells, that place, mm -hmm. you know, that that's a real thing, I think, as yeah. well. Um, even though it's probably at the 
other end of the spectrum in terms of of elective loss or mm. the kind of loss that you welcome or anticipate. But as you said, they all have different flavors, right? Yeah, totally. And I think it's maybe just practice at not being sparkly. I think there's so much pressure on us, thanks to Instagram <laughs> and mm. other social media, to always be presenting the best possible version of ourselves. And to me, that's been exacerbated by everything moving online and Zoom and having the right lighting and looking good and mm. being on top of social isolation and the banana bread craze and all of that. Like, I think it's helpful to have some practice at being able to just be vulnerable and honest and say, when someone is like, how are you doing? To be able to say, I am really not coping. Like, I am really struggling. This is so hard for me. And it was so difficult for me to do because, I mean, maybe it would have been difficult for everyone. I don't know. It was it was really hard for me to do. But grief forced me into that space of extreme vulnerability because I literally could not pretend. I remember going to a talk, like it was like an environmental discussion. I think it was hosted by Daily Maverick. It was like this, and there were all these fascinating people there. And one of my colleagues was like, so how are you doing? And I burst into tears and I was like, let me just outline how shit everything is right now. I just yeah. can't see my way out of it. And until then, I'd been like professional and composed and able to still pretend like I was holding things together. And I think it's helpful sometimes to not hold things together because that's, that's also a great unifier is that none of us are okay all the time. And it's mm. okay to, there's some podcast called that, hey, it's okay to not be okay. Mm, yeah, sure. Bridget, can you tell people a little bit about what they can expect from the book, where they can get hold of it, how they can maybe connect with you if they're interested in talking to you more about the work that you're doing and some of the other projects that you've been involved in and published? Where, where do we find the Grief Handbook? Thank you for this unsponsored ad. Yeah. <laughs> so it's as I said, it's being published in the UK and the States and in South Africa. So in the UK and the States, it's available on Amazon.com and Bookshop.org, which is the way to access independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. In South Africa, it's available on Take-A-Lot and in independent bookstores. And I have specifically, I got the South African rights so that I could do the printing of it here myself because you can mm -hmm. create beautiful books here and they don't have to be expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so it's available for 190 Rand from Take-A-Lot and independent bookstores and 10 Rand of all the Take-A-Lot copies is being donated to HPCA, which is the Hospices Association of South oh, Africa, okay. yeah. um, because they were just the most amazing help to us in the week that we brought my mom home. Mm. And they rely on donations, which is insane to me that they mm. managed to keep going, just relying on donations. And then it's also available as an ebook. So an ebook would be on Amazon Kindle and an audio book, which I'm so excited about. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I narrated it and I thought it would be like heart-wrenching and it was actually so beautiful being able to read what I'd written I didn't realize how much when I write uh, I kind of like tell stories in my head and mm. so to be able to say it out loud was so lovely there are exercises in the book though so I mean I think the print is is the winner because there's coloring in pages and there's kind of journaling exercises and mm lists and spaces to write a letter to your loved one and a letter to grief and it really is like a, a workbook to work through hmm. but the audiobook what we did is we kind of left space with 
soft bird song in the background uh, to think through some of those things or to write down yeah. if you wanted to write down in a book. And yeah, it's a, I've been describing it as a practical, empathetic guide through grief. It's something that I think will help soon after someone has died. I don't know if it helps as much if you've lost someone many years ago. I think it's probably more helpful as a fairly recent Hmm. guide, but I'm not sure yet because I don't know that many people who read it. And I think it's a really lovely gift. So one of the things that we do, obviously, when, when a friend or someone that we love when they've lost someone is we often drop off food, which is great or flowers, which is so lovely, except when you get too many bunches of flowers and then they all die at the same time. And so I wanted this to be priced at the same kind of price as a, as a nice bunch of flowers so that it's possible for people to gift it as well. It's a great idea. Yeah. It's so interesting that the book publishing industry in South Africa, I find fascinating because I published a novel when I was 25 and mm-hmm. I published here and in the States. And I know there's just this excuse that like South Africans don't read and we're not a book buying country. And I think that's true because I think by and large, we're not a book buying country, but there is this amazing reading and like bookstagrammer and book influencer culture online, specifically South African, that is really exciting. And I also think the reason we don't buy books is that they're too expensive. Like, I think it's a it's a vicious circle. We don't buy books because they're too expensive and then they're too expensive because we don't buy books. <laughs> but if we could just make them easily accessible, like that's why I love the idea of selling on Take-A-Lot. I know some book purists are horrified by the idea. But to me, if you can buy like your stationery and a book at the same time, what a joy. Or like you're buying nappies yeah. for your kid and you can throw in a book and get free shipping. Like that's a win-win to me. I'm a, the, the Grief Handbook's website is griefhandbook.com. Mine is bridgetmcnulty.com. I'm on Instagram as Mrs. Bridget McNulty. And I kind of love Instagram now because it's this thoughtful journaling space. Who knew? Hmm. With like a pretty picture and then space to reflect on things. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn as Bridget McNulty. I did my first TikTok this morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> don't know how I feel about it. I find the platform so overwhelming. Like I open it up and it like makes me feel instantly overstimulated. (laughs) But apparently people are looking for grief advice on TikTok. So let's see. So I'm pretty much available everywhere. And then my my diabetes work is on sweetlife.org.za. And we try to show that it's possible to live a healthy, happy life with diabetes. And we're specifically working in the South African diabetes space. Hmm. Incredible. So we'll put those links in the show notes as well, um, just in case people didn't have a chance to to take them down or to log <laughs> on to them rambling. immediately. No, that's amazing. <laughs> Bridget, thank you. Um, just on behalf of people that are listening, and I guess myself, who sometimes find it difficult to stay in those difficult moments of loss and grief, I think we really appreciate that you had the courage to not only journey through it like you did, but also to share that journey with the rest of us. Um, I think it's a very powerful piece of work and, and deeply appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. You know, even if there's just, I know people always say this, even if only one person reads it, but but honestly, if it helps anyone feel less alone in that horrible shock and aftermath of grief, I will be very grateful because writing it was such a gift to me too, because it helped me 
really work through it and create something of beauty out of heartache. When are we ever given the opportunity to do that? Mm. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. And I hope to connect with you online soon. Yes. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.